Sentire Media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Crossover episode 1, part 1, with Steve Guerra of the History of the Papacy on the Lombard. This week's episode represents a bit of a change of plan. As I was completing the episode with the Lombard League and the Italic League and their struggle against Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa, I came upon a very specific source that I hadn't found on the Battle of Legnano. Since this is a very important battle for Italian history, especially connected to modern day-by-day history, I'd like to delve into it a little bit more. So, I'll leave you with the first part of a crossover episode I did with Steve Guerra of the History of the Papacy, in which we talked about the Lombards. I really miss those good old Lombards, so I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did talking about them once again. Welcome back to a very special crossover episode with a History of Italy podcast and the History of the Papacy podcast. I'm Steve, host of the History of the Papacy podcast, and I'm joined by... I'm Mike, and I am the host of a History of Italy podcast. And then my podcast is the History of the Papacy podcast, which is a podcast about the history of the popes of Rome along with the Christian church. It's a kind of a grab bag. I do histories of, especially, I talk a lot about the formation of the Bible, but along with the early foundation of Christianity, now that I'm starting to go a little bit forward, there's a lot more talk about history that's happening inside of Italy. So our podcasts definitely run parallel to each other. Absolutely. And one thing I've always appreciated, and I I generally tell my listeners to go over and listen to your podcast for, is the theological aspect, which is very often over my head. And so I say, if you want to know about that, go over to the history of the papacy and listen to that. So, so yeah, definitely. Yeah, because Rome is, you know, smack smack bang in the middle of of Italy. And then there's no getting around it, not only from a geographical point of view, but also from a political point of view to this very day. I mean, Rome and the papacy influences Italian politics even today to a certain extent, obviously not as much as in the past, but they're still there and they're still influencing things here. Yeah, it really is amazing how it how the papacy and the church the impact and the the effect changes in each era of history. It's it's a little different, but it's still pretty deeply entwined in the bigger story. Absolutely, definitely, yes. And from some moments when Italian history probably wouldn't proceed without the intervention of the papacy to moments where you're sort of more of a bystander to events than in other times. That really leads us into what we were going to talk, what we plan on talking about today, which is the history of the Lombards in Italy. You did a really great series on them, and I thought I've been doing in my podcast little uh, snippets, especially with experts such as yourself, on uh, different political elements that were going on in Italy that. Uh, that affected the the church and the popes and the Lomb- the Lombards is a huge part of the story 
that and they're really complicated. What did you think about the Lombards just in general? Well, I, I actually really enjoyed them. Um, obviously, as you know, having gone to school in Italy, I did have an idea of who they were and what they'd done, but I really didn't get a feel of it until I was actually studying them. And obviously, it's interesting to to look at you know Italians in Italy today and think that such a different people were part of the shared Italian history. I mean, we're talking Vikings, basically, you know, people that came down from Scandinavia, uh, then spent some centuries even making their way through Europe down to Italy. And and it was very interesting to see that that was such an, you know, an important part of Italian history and also for your listeners of the papacy, because we must remember that under the Lombards, the, the, the papacy really became a force, a political force to reckon with, you know, starting with Gregory the Great, which you've done a couple of episodes recently on, all the way down to the, the donation of Sutri, which was one of the main starting points of the papal states, really. So they're, they're definitely an interesting bunch, and I, I enjoyed them, and I was a bit sorry to see them go and those Franks <laughs> coming in and pushing them out. And so, But, you know, they hung around a lot uh, longer than one would expect, uh, and, you know, there's traces of them to this day. So I enjoyed them very much. Where did the Lombards come from exactly? They were... They existed outside of the Roman Empire, and they came into Italy after the Western Roman Empire had fallen. They were kind of late in the later part of the whole migration game. What were they doing, say, in the fourth, the third, maybe the third, fourth, fifth centuries before they came into Italy proper? Well, it's hard to tell exactly what they were doing because they have no written history. Nothing was written down by the Lombards until they actually did get to Italy when uh, they, they wrote down their laws. And maybe we'll talk about, about that later, the Edict of Rothery. But basically in that time, they were wandering down Europe from Scandinavia, collecting bits here and there because they obviously the people that arrived in Italy in uh, 568 in particular with King Albuin were not the people that started off from their original... They didn't even have the same name, actually, because they actually started off life as the Winili, which means something like either fierce in battle or demon dogs, because apparently <laughs> they, they would wear... I don't know if they would chop off dogs' heads and wear them, or they would make dog masks or something like that, but some traces of Roman historians have had them looking like or wearing some kind of dog costume to make them more fierce in battle. And so as they came down, they actually met other tribes, other Germanic tribes, in some cases integrating, some cases clashing. And, for example, the clash with the um, Vandals is where they got their, where they changed their names to the Lombards because basically they came up against these Vandals and legend would have it that on the night before the battle, the uh, women, the Lombard women, went to the goddess Freya, the wife of Wotan or Odin, the, the Germanic god of all gods, let's say, and asked for her help. And so basically, um, Odin had promised that the winner of the battle between the Winili, or would become the Lombards, and the Vandals would be the first ones he saw in the morning, on the morning of the battle. So Freya, his wife, suggested to the Lombard women that they should put their hair down in front of their faces and stand next to the Lombard men so their number looked greater and then Odin would see them on the day. And so that they did. And it seems that Odin woke on that day, saw them, 
and asked himself, who are those warriors with the long beards? Now, long beards in German would be Langeberte, which in Italian became Longobardi, so the long beards. And that's why they, they changed their name from the Winnili to the to Lombards in, uh, in English. And they even gave their name to a, an existing Italian region, which is Lombardy, where, where Milan is the, the capital. So that's what they were doing, basically. They were making their way down, changing names, um, meeting and greeting other Germanic uh, tribes, and in some cases clashing, some cases ab- absorbing them into their social structure, let's say. It's a pretty big deal to change the name of an entire region, especially in a place that's as well established as that northern part of Italy. How did they come? Did they come en masse with families or was it more of just a warrior elite that had migrated? Well, the first time they actually had a taste and experience of Italy was as part of the Byzantine invasion force that fought against the Goths. In Italy, up until that point, the uh, Goths had held, uh, for, for a couple of decades, had held Italy. And uh, when the Byzantines under Nazis, under the eunuch Nazis, invaded Italy, Gothic Italy, they brought a contingent of Lombards with them. And that's where they experienced, where the Lombards had a taste of Italy for the first time. Apparently, they were so naughty and raucous and misbehaved that, that they were sent off earlier than, uh, you know, they, they didn't get to see the end of the war, but they got to see Italy and they liked it. So when uh, time came, at that time they would have been in what was known as Pannonia, which is a region sort of modern day Austria, a little bit of Slovenia, just up on the border of Italy. And uh, so when the time came, it was getting a bit crowded there. They were sort of pushing and shoving. They'd done a bit of pushing and shoving with the Gepids, which are another sort of Gothic a group and now they were risking a push and shove with the avars and so they said okay well rather than keep on staying here we'll just go down to the land of milk and honey and uh, taking over italy was a relatively easy task by that time because it had been devastated and was sort of uh, chafing under the yoke of byzantine rule and so it was a pretty easy thing to come down and to to take over quite a bit of the peninsula is that why it happened so fast? Because there was a vacuum in the peninsula where the Byzantines weren't 100% committed and the Ostrogoths were pretty much wiped out. Is that what made it so easy for them to go into the Italian peninsula and take over so uh, rapidly? That's definitely part of it, yeah. Um, the administration under Nazis was very unpopular. The uh, country during the Gothic War had suffered from... So not only had there been the Gothic War, but you'd also had famine, you'd had pestilence, so the, the, the people were decimated. There were certain areas of Italy which had been completely and totally depopulated. Uh, the area where I live, for example, Emilia, everyone had migrated down to the sea. And uh, in many cases, there was just nothing, to nobody to oppose the, um, the Lombards. Uh, the Byzantines, as you were saying, Steve, weren't that dedicated um, Nazis had had a terrible time trying to rebuild the, the rubble of a country that had suffered years and years of war with very little finances as well. So he'd had to sort of tax the pants out of the poor locals, and obviously they weren't loving that. So it really was uh, relatively simple for the Lombards to come in to Italy and invade Italy, because it was different, because whereas the Goths came in as what would be called federati, 
uh, sort of allies of of the empire, the the Lombards were an actual invasion force, so they had no sort of illusion of of being allies with the empire. They would have come in, uh, let's say, that the second time, not as a band of warriors affiliated with an invasion force, but that would have been sort of a mass migration. Now, obviously, numbers there are almost impossible, but the one I see recurring most often is about 150,000 people, which is, you know, not uh, not so much considering the local population as well. But they came in and they were able to become the elite of the country and to take over the positions of power. And it was one case in which really those that suffered most from an invasion once the invasion was over were the those at the, the top. So the, the Italian or Roman nobles were either killed or exiled, uh, whereas once the invasion had uh, finished, the, the, the lower levels of societies didn't have a terrible time of it, also because they had sort of similar social situations, economic situations, without the Byzantine taxes. So you could say, in a certain sense, things improved a bit for the lower levels of society. You might So you might say that the lower levels, they weren't maybe ecstatic about it, but it was well, kind of the same thing, different people. Yeah, I mean, one, obviously the initial invasion would have been something terrible with the pillaging and sacking. But if you were able to survive that, then uh, it, it wasn't as bad as maybe it was under the Byzantines, where you had all of the problems of daily life in the early Middle Ages, plus very heavy Byzantine taxations, which the, the Lombards didn't apply. Where did the Lom- the Lombards obviously came in through the north? Where were their major power centers well, they, it, once they were in the Italian peninsula? Well, they came in through the uh, northeast in the area of uh, Cividale, um, that was once known as the uh, the Julian Alps, basically, and um, that was actually where they left their first duke. Uh, The name Duke comes from the term Dux, which is a Roman term meaning leader or commander. And so the first uh, Duke was was set there in Cividale. And as I say in my podcast, mm, King Alboin, who took the the Lombards in, actually did something which my children never managed to do, which is shut the door behind him (laughs) uh, in the sense that he, he created a fortification there in Cividale, against future invasions indeed the the future problems for the lombards didn't come from that area but then came from the west from the from the franks and so basically as they came down well we really need to take a, take a step back because one thing we need to say about the lombards is they were not a united people really Alboin was only actually the second mm, king that had managed to unite them as a people. And they were really off doing their own thing. You know, they had all different groups. The tribal groups of the Lombards were called Fare, uh, one Fara, a single Fara. And so everybody was really off doing their own thing once they'd settled. So the main centers, they, they in some cases, they uh, used existing cities. So, for example, Verona, uh, Pavia. Uh, Milan. In other cases, they would create cent- other centers. Um, so, for example, they, 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 there was an important Roman city which was Aquileia, and they didn't uh, settle Aquileia, but it settled nearby and created their own city. They would create uh, settlements in areas, obviously, as people have done since ancient times, around rivers, around crossings, around bridges. And so, in the north, they they had those centers. And going further south, they went as far south as Benevento and uh, Spoleto. And those are two big names because the dukes of Benevento and Spoleto 
in all of the history of the Lombards were always causing some kind of trouble. All, all of the dukes were very, very ready to, uh, to try and be as independent as they could. But in particular, the dukes of Benevento and Spoleto were quite far off. They were cut off by what became then the papal states and what were the remaining, at the time, the remaining Byzantine holdings. So they were far enough to do their own thing and cause trouble without the king trying to intervene. Indeed, at the beginning, they actually, the Lombards got rid of their, I mean, they didn't uh, elect any kings after their second king in Italy, which was Clef. He died in 574. And so between 574 and 584, they did without kings. They said, okay, well, everybody do your own thing. Everybody manage your own bit of the country. But then with the Franks looming ever present over in the West, they said, okay, maybe we need a king, and then back in, in 584, they elected uh, Althari, or Althari, as king, and from then on, they had a central power in the king from then on until the end of their reign. But, for example, the, the dukes, the duchies of Spoleto and Benevento actually survived beyond the fall of the northern Lombard Empire as well, so they, they were quite important historically. I, I guess to fill in the timeline a little bit, what happened at that time between in the northern part of their kingdom in the um after they had settled they made a kingdom a unified kingdom but then when the franks hit the scene why did the franks come in and uh, have a conflict with with the lombards in the northern part of the um of italy well that depends how how far you want to go down the line because i know that in your podcast steve you, you're sort of just getting to the the Frank to the uh, Lombards, but well, basically the Franks had always been peeking over the the Alps. Let's say also in the times of the Gothic War, they had uh, done a little bit of raiding coming in. So one of the tasks of Narses, of the Byzantine ruler, when he'd uh, won the Gothic War, was to get rid of the Franks. So you know, one was was just basically northern Italy, in particular the Po Valley. is It's a very fertile area. And it's the only area, if you have a chance to look on a map, the Po Valley is the only non-mountainous fertile area of Italy. And it's very good for farming and it has the Po River running through the center. So it's always been an area that's ripe for for conquest, basically. But in time, um, the Franks came to the aid of the papacy. Obviously, we're looking quite a bit down the line. And in the end... The, the, the Lombard kingdom of the north actually fell because of their continuous, let's say, encroachment on papal lands and the risk that the Pope saw in being absorbed by the Lombard kingdom. And so that's why once he'd understood, uh, he, you know, to say the Pope at the moment, understood that uh, there was no more help coming from the Byzantine Empire, then he started to look towards the Franks and that's when they got the excuse to come and uh, and invade and encroach on those fertile those lands, those important lands as well. And in those years, they were basically setting up a kingdom. So, you know, they, they slowly managed to settle, so to move from a semi-nomadic uh, uh, hunter-gatherer culture that, that had basically uh, breeding and farming of animals to a more sedentary agricultural culture. And then later on down the line with the uh, Another important king, which was Rothery, they, they set their laws down in writing. And interestingly, those laws made it uh, for, for quite a few centuries. The Franks themselves actually used the Lombard Code of Law of Rothery and then later 
extended, let's say, by other kings, uh, for example, Aripert and uh, Lutebrand in particular, they, they, they set down these laws and they were very important uh, up until basically Roman law was discovered in the university period. So you're talking, you know, the, the 11th, 12th centuries, uh, you still had people claiming to live and abide by Lombard law. So centuries after the, the Edict of Rothery, which was around 653, um, mid-600s, let's say. So they were, they were setting up shop, you can say. That's a good um, jump into what was their governmental structure in Italy and generally their how were they how did they establish their government and how did they rule, especially when they're ruling over mostly the local Roman population, uh, you know, Latin, non-Germanic population. How how did they interact with them and how did they organize themselves well, basically, at the beginning, they found these strange creatures, you know, these Romans that weren't warriors, and they were normal citizens doing, uh, you know, being farmers or artisans and things like that. So they, they didn't really initially fit into the whole Lombard philosophy, because if you were a Lombard, you, uh, you were part of three groups. So the top group, the top uh, social strata, let's say, were that of the Arimanni, who were the sort of noble warrior lords. Uh, under the Arimani, you had the Aldi, who were um, free men, but in some way dependent on the Arimani. And then you had basically the serfs. And the ro local Roman population really didn't fit into this structure, so it took a little bit of adapting. But once the Lombards did start to settle down and move to a more sort of agricultural culture, they found that they needed the help of the Roman, let's call them Roman for, for lack of, you know, Roman or Italian administrators to manage what they'd taken over. And so they were there, you know, the administrators were there and they're ready. And so we saw, we see from the beginning of the, the Lombard conquest, uh, more integration, you know, whereas the Goths had actually tried to keep everything separate and made completely different law systems for Goths or for the Romans. With the um, Lombards, we see a greater level of integration uh, one thing that's always interesting for us is drinking. And uh, so the drinking habits, you know, the Lombards came in as drinkers of, of let's say, beer or mead or, you know, what, whatever passed for beer back then. They moved in and slowly in time, especially the upper levels, took to drinking wine. And indeed, by the time of the Edict of Rothery, so we're looking not that long after, about 70 years after the initial invasion, there, there's no trace of... Uh, regulations and laws regarding beer, but lots of regulations and laws regarding the protection of vineyards, for example. So they came and they settled and they started to take up local culture and even language because by the 8th century, the Lombard language actually disappeared. So, you know, we have no real written trace of what kind of language they actually spoke, although we can assume it was something akin to uh, you know, Anglo-Saxon, Old English, or Proto-Germanic, or, or one of those uh, Germanic languages, let's say. Well, I hope you enjoyed that first part of the conversation with Steve, and I'll be releasing part two of that next week to fit into our usual scheduling time, which I'm told is pretty good for the average commute. 
Then, after that, we'll be back on track with Barbarossa and his struggle with the northern communes. Also, there's another crossover collaboration in the works, so listen out for that. It should be very, very interesting. Until then, thanks very much to everyone for listening. Remember that, as always, you can get in touch. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com and at the same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com, you can click through to our social media. We are on Twitter and Facebook or look at timelines and maps and everything you need to navigate our country's complicated history. Thank you very much for listening again and until next time, arrivederci. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.